If you have a Bible, if you don't, please, there's some up the back, I think have been handed out. Turn with me, if you would, please, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I want to read a portion of Scripture here, verses 1 through 29. It's a lengthy portion, but absolutely essential for what it is we're going to be looking at for the next few moments together. John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him, must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just as His disciples came back. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That's our text this morning. Boy, I have introductions, some comments to make before we get into what it is the text is saying for us this morning, the Word of God. Here is a statement. Everybody, everybody in this room, everybody in this world 
pursues fulfillment and satisfaction in life. Whether it be found, as some people think, in one's career, in marriage, in social status or in personal development, we all want approval. We all seek happiness. We all seek contentment. This desire is by no means evil in and of itself. In fact, it's given to you by God, the desire itself. However, the great problem is that we think that fulfillment and satisfaction can be found in something other than God. Rather than look to him, we actively pursue temporal elements of life which all fall short and disappoint. Why do we have a 50% divorce rate? Because people think that ultimate satisfaction can be found in a mate. However, when the honeymoon period is over, when the relationship is strained through pressures of life, when the body gets older and less desirable, the satisfaction is gone and the marriage begins to crumble. Often we see and read and hear of young people who are finding pleasure, temporal pleasure and temporal happiness in parties, in alcohol, in sex, in substance. The sheer exhilaration for a time covers the loneliness and lack of purpose in life. While the music is pounding and the people are dancing, life seems worth living. But when the lights go out, when the music fades, the reality of deep inner discontentment sets in again. The next morning is an absolute tragedy as both the head and the heart throbs. As an emptiness. In fact, the richest man in the Bible, perhaps the richest man in all of history, Solomon, tried wine. He tried wealth. He tried women. He tried worldly wisdom. And in the final analysis, this is what he wrote in Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all of it was vanity, worthless, futile. It was a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon says, I tried everything. I had everything at my disposal and I found that it was all vain and worthless. And the reason is that there's only one place, folks, this morning where there is true contentment and fulfillment. Jesus. I want to preach a message this morning simply entitled, The Soul satisfying saviour the soul satisfying saviour lord as i seek to expound the truths of this passage uh, i need your help so much for i know that i am in and of myself unable to do anything of spiritual worth anything that can make a difference in lives the spirit of god must be the one who does that and so i pray that you would limit our distractions this morning, our minds wandering, that we would consider the truth of your word, lay aside from our minds and our hearts all the obstacles and the hindrances that we bring to it, that the word of God would cut us deeply and pierce us thoroughly, that this morning we'd realize, perhaps as a lost person for the first time, just how futile our own attempts at pursuit really are. And then as a Christian, O oh Lord, if we have neglected to continue drinking at the fountain of living waters... Help us, O Lord, to return. Help us today to taste again and afresh the joy and sustenance that's found in Jesus Christ and him alone. 
Lord, the world will sell us a bill of goods that is futile and vain and worthless. But we want to take our cues from your word. Help us today, we pray, to have eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you the backdrop to our text this morning, a little bit of context and, and the setting here. We are dealing here with the very first year of the Lord Jesus' ministry. Here he, is, uh, here he is going to Samaria. This is at the very beginning of his ministry. He's already called his first disciples. He's already turned the water into wine at the, uh, at the wedding in Cana, his first miracle, his first public miracle that we know of. He's cleansed the temple of the money changers. We read about that earlier in John. And he's had an account an encounter, excuse me, with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 by night. That ruler of the Pharisees who came to him and said, Who are you, teacher? What have you got to say? How do you do these things? What do I need to enter the kingdom of God? And the Lord Jesus has answered that question in the previous chapter. But something interesting has occurred in chapter 4 and verse 1. The Lord Jesus and his disciples are gaining a huge following in this region, a massive following. So much so that John the Baptist's following is seemingly insignificant now. And we say, what's so uh, important about that? Well, in chapter 4 and verse 1, Jesus learns that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. This is a big statement. Because if we go to the, the Gospel of Matthew, we're not going to turn there. We read that all of Jerusalem and Judea had turned out to John's baptism earlier on. They'd all come out in their droves and been baptized. Now Jesus is on the scene with his disciples and there are droves, multitudes of people coming to be baptized. Now you can imagine the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, who think that they're in charge of all the rites and ceremonies of religious activity. They're not very pleased about this. And so I believe that they are already setting out a plan to remove the Lord Jesus this early in his ministry. And we see that Jesus becomes aware that the Pharisees had heard about all of that. So what does he do at the end of verse 1? He leaves Judea and he departs back to Galilee, his hometown. Now, on a map, we have Samaria down the bottom here, or at least uh, southwest. And up the top here is Galilee. So he has quite a distance to go from here to there. And so he's down the bottom and he needs to go to Galilee. But the Bible tells us there in verse number four, and he had to pass through Samaria. I've got a number of points for us this morning and I've tried to keep them simple and I hope they are. In fact, I don't even know if we'll get to all of them, but we're going to start. The first thing I want you to note is that Jesus defies religious custom. This morning, I want to introduce you to who this person Jesus is in this story, in this encounter. Jesus defies religious custom. And he had to pass through Samaria. The Bible says he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. On the face of this, this may not seem all that interesting. This might seem like, where are you going with this? This seems a little bit strange. But let me just tell you something about the Lord Jesus that I love so much. It is very clear that he never in, was never intending or interested in externalism. He was never interested in how you looked on the outside. He was always concerned with transformation of the heart. 
He is a radical. Don't for a moment think that the Lord Jesus, like we see painted in pictures, is this, this quiet, conservative little man who really may have had a little bit of a following but didn't do a whole lot of impact in his day. This is an outspoken, radical leader in his day and he is not interested in the externals of an individual. He's interested in a transformation of the heart within. And I want to show you why. He commences his journey home. And there's a number of routes that the Lord Jesus could have taken to get back to Galilee. But he chose to cut through the heart of Samaria and continue north to Nazareth. Here's some background for you that will help fill in the gaps. There is great hostility between the Jews up here in the north and the Samaritans down here in the south. It's been raging for centuries In 722 BC, so 722 years, around about before the Lord Jesus comes on the scene, the Assyrians had captured many Jews from the north, the ten northern tribes. They'd taken them away captive. The king of Assyria had also sent some of his own people to the various places in Israel to occupy it and to create a new civilization, as was the custom of the day. But something interesting happened, which is a work of God. It doesn't say that, but it is. A great deal of lions, lions, physical lions, began to inhabit Israel at the time after the Assyrians had taken captive many people. And the Assyrians were believers that lions, the presence of lions, came about because the people who they had invaded, they were not uh, honouring their worship and their religion. And so the Assyrian king decided to send to Israel one of their own prophets or one of their scribes, one of their rabbis, to teach even the new people about Judaism and the truths found in the Old Testament. And so they received general instruction from the books of Moses. But they combined some of that with the old rites and religious idolatrous customs of the Assyrians. So now we have this combination. Hopefully you're all following me what's going on here. A whole lot of... The Jews are taken captive, but many of the Jews are left in Israel. And these Jews that are left in Israel, under the instruction of the rabbi, believe some of the things they're getting taught, but they're also engaging in idolatrous practices as part of the Assyrians as well. Now, this is all well and good until those in captivity come back to Israel. Because these over here who were taken are the pure Jews. They've stayed with their religious beliefs, whereas these ones here that have been left behind, they have been mingled, intermarried, partially with Assyrians, partially with others. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a disaster in the Jewish mind. They were no longer considered a pure race. So a great separation occurs. The Samaritans withdraw from Israel and go south to what is now called in our scriptures Samaria, And they form their own religious practice. And instead of worshipping in Jerusalem, they worship at the Mount Gerizim in Samaria. You say, what is the point of all that you're telling us? Just hold on for just a minute. Here's the fact. If you are a serious Jew in this day, you will not go through Samaria. And here's why. If you come into contact with a half-breed Samaritan... You will defile yourself. That's the Jews' position. The religious leaders would intentionally bypass Samaria all the way across here into the 
uh, the east and go up across the Jordan and all the way around on a very long distance track so that they didn't go through the region of Samaria lest they become defiled. You know what I love? I love that Jesus Christ, the indiscriminate character in history, doesn't say, I'm going to go this way. He cuts straight through the heart of Samaria with a purpose. And so we see in that, just that alone, that Jesus defies religious customs of the day. He doesn't cross the Jordan. He doesn't go through the region of Perea. He goes straight through the heart of Samaria. It's not simply because it was quicker. It was. It's not simply because he chose the easier way. And it was not primarily to defy the religious practices of the day. It's because he had a divine appointment with a lady in Samaria that we're about to read about. You know what else I find interesting as I study the word of God? And uh, it's not a huge point, but it's just an interesting little note. The word Sychar, that's the place where the Lord Jesus sat by the well and the woman came. You know what Sychar means? It means literally the place of drunkards. That's what the word means. Drunkards, the place where drunkards gather. And the name may not have direct relevance at this particular point in history, but you know what it does encourage me? Is that where there are stigmas, Jesus is still prepared to go. Where there are problems, where there is a history, the Lord Jesus is interested in being right there. That encourages me because you know what? I have an enormous amount of problems. And so do you. And the Lord Jesus sits by my well. You know, I think it's interesting. Some of you may not even realize this. Some of you may not even recognize this. But you are here by divine appointment. You say, well, no, I chose to come. I chose to, uh, to get in the car this morning. I chose to get on the bus. I chose to do whatever. I, 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 I chose all that. That may be true. You did choose. But you are here by divine appointment. God has you here for a reason. And it's interesting. This whole story, this whole account was by divine appointment. The Lord Jesus didn't take the long way. He came directly through Samaria. And anybody who's anybody in that day would have said, why would you go through Samaria? That's not the right place for you. Jesus defies religious custom. I want you to see, secondly, verses 6 through 9, if you would look here. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, notice her question. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I've just explained why that is. I want you to see, secondly, Jesus defies social convention. Jesus defies social convention. Not only does he defy religious custom, he defies social convention. A couple of observations to note if you're looking in the scriptures with me there. First of all, the Lord Jesus is wearied. That encourages me. You know why? He's a human being. He's wearied from his journey. This is the Lord Jesus in his humanity. He's God in the flesh. I have no question whatsoever. But he is also human and he experiences all that we experience in humanity. So that when you're tired, when you're struggling, when you're weary, when all of those things are happening, you can say, I have a saviour who knows what this is like. He was wearied. That seems a strange concept to many of us. And he sits beside the well. It's the sixth hour. Now in the Jewish realm, that is noon, 12 p.m. It's an important little indicator in the timeline of events. 
A woman, and the scripture here in the Greek suggests there's just one person there, the Lord Jesus and this woman. A woman comes from Samaria to Jacob's well. So what's so interesting about this? This is not the time to draw water from the well. Here's a couple of things to note. In the custom of the day, women went together to draw water from the well. One for safety and one because they wanted fellowship together. So they would go to the well and they would usually do it in the early parts of the morning or the late parts of the afternoon simply because it's so hot. You don't go at 12 o'clock in the middle of the day. That's just not what happens. And I would suggest to you that the reason why the woman was going to the well at this time is that she was already an outcast in society. She'd had five husbands, and the one she was living with right now was not her husband. And so she was forced to be alone in going to the well. Now, I don't know that for sure, but I believe it's based on public shame. And we read about all her deeds in verse 18. So here she is, this adulterous woman at the well. And the ruling of the day, the cultural custom of the day, a Jewish man never spoke to a woman in public let alone a woman who was a Samaritan. I mean, you imagine the highest hostility you can tell. This is the worst case scenario. I mean, a woman. Some of us go, what? But in that day, in the Jewish culture, you don't speak to a woman, unless it's your wife, you don't speak to a woman in public, full stop. And you definitely don't speak to a woman of Samaria. I mean, that's like the cardinal sin of the culture in that day. In fact, John MacArthur writes, this was a definite breach of rigid social custom as well as a marked departure from social animosity that existed between these groups. Furthermore, a rabbi or a teacher or religious leader never held a conversation with a woman of ill repute. That was just unheard of. Didn't do that. So what's so important about that? The Lord Jesus is without discrimination and defies the social protocol. This isn't the first time either. How about when the woman was caught in adultery? Remember that with the Lord Jesus a little bit later? She was caught in adultery and and the Pharisees and rabbis were about to pick up stones. And what does he say? You who are without sin, you cast the first stone. As he looks up, they're all gone. Everyone's gone. The Lord Jesus has done this so many times. What about the blind beggar? He wasn't concerned that the man was a beggar and blind. The ten lepers, he wasn't afraid to touch them. The demoniac of Gadara. If there's a scary guy in scripture, it's the demoniac of Gadara. This man had a legion of demons, up to 6,000 demons living within one individual. This guy was absolutely nuts, we would say. He's cutting himself with stones. Uh, He's uh, tried to commit suicide many times, the scripture seems to indicate. He's in the caves and and the cemeteries of the day. He's howling and screaming. Nobody can do anything to him. And the Lord Jesus goes to that side of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, to meet that man. Most of us, if we're honest, wouldn't do that. The deaf man. What about the boy with an unclean spirit? We go through miracle after miracle after miracle and we are confronted with a saviour, a Jesus, who cares and loves, as we sung all morning, the individual sinner. You see, this is the reality you you and I need to understand. The good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ is not for the well. It's for the sick. The Lord Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, only those who are sick. I did not come to call those who are righteous or who think they are righteous. I came to call sinners. 
Please notice this this morning, um, church, every single person in this room, notice this, the water of life is not for the Pharisee who thinks his externalism will satisfy. It's not for him. It's for the sinner who knows they're in desperate need of saving. Jesus loves the drunkard. Jesus loves the homosexual. Jesus loves the adulterer. Jesus loves the drug addict. Jesus loves the men and women of ill repute. And Jesus specializes in transforming the unsocial, the immoral, the uncultured and the ashamed outcasts in society into the beloved children of God. That's his specialty. His specialty is taking what we see as the worst, most heinous crimes and the worst, most heinous criminals and turning them into the children of light. That is the display of his great glory. And you heard a testimony this morning of my brother who has seen so much of that. And God has rescued him. And the same is true for you. It doesn't matter about the past. Your past will be covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. But from this moment when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the past is behind you. Walk forward in the truth and newness of life that is Jesus Christ. He changes everything. And when you read about the demoniac of Gadara, when he's confronted by the Lord Jesus, you know what the Bible says? Suddenly he is sitting down, clothed and in his right mind. Previously, this man was crazy. Everything was going wrong in his life. He was naked and cutting himself. Now he's sitting clothed and in his right mind. That's the difference that Jesus makes. And you know what? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 says this. Scary verse. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkard, revilers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a very strong statement. But you know what I love? I love the next verse. It says this. And such were some of you. But you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This was who we were. And Christian, if I may for a moment focus my attention on you for just a second. Do not get a righteousness complex. Don't suddenly think that you are somehow better than others because God has cleaned up your life. Because you don't do what you used to do. Don't get a righteous complex about it. You are at best, at best, A vile sinner saved by the immeasurable grace of God. You have nothing to boast in save God alone. So if you turn your nose up or down at a sinner because of the situation that they find themselves in, in their sin, you are in a terrible way because you have blasphemed the grace of God. You really have because you're saying, you know what, God's grace can't save that individual and I've forgotten that I was saved just like they can be. You were some of them. But then I also want to turn my attention for just a moment to those of you who perhaps do not know the reality of what it is to have a changed life in Jesus Christ. To have contentment, to know that your sins are forgiven. If you are a sinner, which you are, you qualify to receive God's forgiveness. If you're a sinner, you qualify. And the Bible says, for all have sinned. But if you believe that you are not a sinner, you are disqualified. You say, what? Hang on, I thought God's grace was forever. It is, but God's grace is activated when you realize, I am a sinner under the condemnation and wrath of God. I have no hope in myself. 
You know what I love? I love that Jesus meets the sinner where they are. Where they are. I love that Jesus right now waits by the well for you. I love the fact that here today there is the opportunity for you to trust in Jesus Christ. The the opportunity is right there and the, the, the question has to come. Will I place my faith and trust in the man by the well who says he has the water of life? Will I do that? Or will I just go on past that well doing my daily routine thing, looking for satisfaction all over the place? Jesus waits by the well for you. In John chapter 4 and verse 10, Jesus answers her and he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water, Jesus says, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I just want to make a couple of observations here under our third point. Our third point is this, Jesus dispenses eternal life. Jesus dispenses eternal life. Some observations for your consideration. The Lord Jesus says here, if you knew the gift of God, what gift of God? What is the Lord Jesus referring to? What gift of God? If you knew it, lady at Samaria, by the way, who is unnamed, we don't even know what her name is, woman of Samaria, if you knew the gift of God, what gift of God? Well, as we look right throughout the entire Gospels, we find For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What is the gift of God? The gift of God is standing in front of you, lady, is in essence what the Lord Jesus is saying. I am that gift. I am the gift given by God. If you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who I am, he says, you would ask of me and I would give you living water. I think it's interesting that... uh, on a human level, the, the lady missed the point totally. What did she say? She says, well, you haven't even got a bucket. How are you going to, how you, how are you going to give me living water? She was thinking on a natural level, like Nicodemus, Nicodemus in the chapter before when the Lord Jesus says, except you be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can I be born again? I can't get back into my mother's womb. It's an impossibility. Here she says the same thing. Where's your bucket? You haven't got a bucket. You can't draw water. And you know what? We're the same in our natural sense. The Lord Jesus, from his word, gives spiritual truth and we start interpreting it physically. He's not talking about a physical bucket. He's not talking about a physical well. He's not talking about physical water. So what is he talking about? Because the woman here says, are you wiser? Are you more capable than Jacob? I mean, Jacob found this this spring, he built the well, even his cattle and livestock drank from are you Are you something better than Jacob? She begins to doubt this man's character. Who, who do you think you are? I mean, this is Jacob we're talking about. I want you to note this morning that Jesus makes a remarkable statement. Please listen to this. Either... What Jesus says about him being the gift of God and the means of living water is true or he is the greatest liar in all of history. That is a reality. Either Jesus can dispense soul-satisfying water, which results in eternal life, or 
I'm a liar. Christians are liars. God himself is a liar in the word of God here. Jesus is the greatest uh, fantasy in the world if this is not true. Or this is the most profound statement ever made. I wonder which it is. What is the Lord Jesus saying is the water? What is this water? What is this water that he says, I can give you living water? It's the message of grace. It's the message of the gospel. It is the good news. What is that? What is the gospel? What is grace? What is the good news? What is this living water? Well, for some of you, you may never have heard this before. You and I are sinners by birth. We are estranged from God. We are enemies of God and children under divine wrath. It's not a message you're going to go home and go, wow, I really enjoyed that this morning. You're not going to walk out of here and go, wow, I really enjoy being called a sinner. I love being told that I'm estranged from God. This is heavy stuff. Let me explain what this means. This means that you and I are in desperate need of God's grace. We need divine enablement because Ephesians 2 tells us we are dead in our sin. We have not got a hope on our own. We have no chance of knowing God. We have no chance of forgiveness of sin. We have no chance of a home in heaven. None of that is a reality until we realize the fact that we are sinners by birth and under God's divine wrath. And then you know why the love of God is so incredible? Because long before you and I ever came on the scene, long before we were even a thought in the mind of our parents or generations gone by, God had fashioned a plan in eternity past to bring about redemption, to purchase your soul, to make you a child of his by means of his perfect son. And this is what God the Father decided to do. I'm going to send my perfect son in the form of a human being. He's going to be born there in Bethlehem in a manger like so often we're told at Christmas time. And he's going to grow up as the sinless, perfect son of God. And he's going to spend three and a half years teaching the truth about himself. And then on that one day, he is going to lay down his life on the cross. Now some people say, what's the point? Why did Jesus even die? Here's the point. The perfect son of God was the only person qualified to take your sin. He's the only one. And so what happened is we have this wonderful thing called double imputation. That is where all of my sin is cast upon Jesus Christ. All of it. Every part of it. And to me is credited his righteousness when I trust in Jesus Christ. At that moment of conversion, I am as though perfect. Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed. And you say, what's the point of that? The righteous demands of justice say no sin can enter the presence of God. You have no hope of entering into any relationship with God unless you are clothed in the righteousness of his precious son. Because nobody can fulfill all the law and not make one error. We're sinners. And so Jesus Christ fulfilled the demands of justice for you. The Lord Jesus Christ became sin for you that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. For by grace we are saved through faith. It's nothing we can do of ourselves. It is the gift of God. You say, does God love me? Does God love you? Does God love you? He gave his only begotten son for you. Say, does God love me? Yes, God loves you. How much does he love you? Well, he he widens his arms like this and stretches them out and dies for your sin and for mine. gospel the satisfaction 
of God's righteous demands met in his son for you. We call this the substitutionary atonement. He took my place. Does God love me? In his death and in his resurrection, he conquered death, hell and sin. The death knell of Satan, it was all over. Jesus died and then when he rose again, he rose to new life victorious. You say, as a Christian, do I have hope of eternal life? Do you have hope? Jesus rose. Your hope is as much fixed in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So will you. That's how we know. You know, every soul is seeking satisfaction. Every soul is seeking satisfaction. God designed it this way. Jesus is the answer. The world can only offer you temporal pleasure. They can only give you a moment's joy or satisfaction. But once the activity or the pursuit is over, we return back to a worldly well where we draw from again. And we go through the same routine for another dose. Alcohol, sex, drugs, bodybuilding, wealth, extreme sports, all of these are substitutes for the living Water. They're not wrong in and of themselves, but often they are substitutes. So if you're lost here this morning, you have just had a gospel presentation. And I'll leave the Spirit of God to work on your heart on that. But Christian, you're now in sight for a moment here. I want to take aim at something that really, really bothers me in church today. The Bible says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. It'll be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. One of the most horrendous teachings in the church, please, Christian church, regular individuals, listen to this. This is absolutely crucial. One of the most horrendous teachings in the church today is that the gospel is for unbelievers only. So what? I've always been told Christ died for our sins. Once I've believed that, well, that, that, isn't that the end of it? That he rose again? That's the end of the gospel. The gospel is not just for unbelievers Interestingly, this first clause, whoever drinks, whoever drinks, this is the present continuous in the Greek. You know what this means? Whoever keeps on drinking, whoever continues at the fountain of living waters, whoever continues to be there will never be thirsty again. You say, sometimes in my Christian life, I feel like I'm getting thirsty again. I feel like perhaps I've I've distanced myself. I don't feel quite as satisfied. you know why? It's because you left the fountain of living waters and you have gone and drunk from the cistern of this life for a portion of time. See, the gospel is not something you drink once and it's all over. It's not something that you just say, well, you know what? I tasted of the Lord. I saw he was good. Now I'm a Christian. I can go live however I want. That's not the gospel. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel works that we are dependent on God. We drink for the first time. And in that, we are satisfied spiritually forever. But we continue to drink that we would be more and more like the one who offers the drink. That's the gospel. You say, I have major problems in my Christian life at the moment. That's great. You know why? Because we have the answer. It's the gospel. You say, well, hang on, how can you say my problems are great? I say they're great because we are forced to run back to the gospel again. We run back to Christ and we find him to be the superman. We find him to be our superhero in life. He's the only one. You know, when I talk to unsaved people, I often say to them this, please do not believe that Christianity today is what Christ is. You know why? Christians, every one of us, are hypocrites. 
Every one of us. There is no Christian who is not a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. We're all coming to and fro in our walk. We're all erring from the path from time to time. But the reality is Christ never changes. Now, I want to be more and more like him. I want to be more, I want to drink and constantly drink more of his character in and learn more of who he is. We run back to the gospel all the time, Christian. All the time. We have to. We do not drink once and go away and drink somewhere else. Jeremiah says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns. That can hold no water. Let me say this to you, Christian, here this morning. If you would have the victory, you have it ultimately, but if you would have ongoing daily victory in your life, if you would have joy, if you would walk in the Spirit, if you would see spiritual growth and spiritual success, you must continue to drink the living water. There are so many more things to say, but time is against me this morning. Let me just quickly tell you what the three other points were. I'm not going to give them to you, but I'm just going to summarize them real quick. One thing we note next in our text in John 4, 15 to 18, is that Jesus distinguishes the hearts of men. This lady responds and says, well, well give me this water that I don't have to come to the well again. You missed the point again, lady. You missed it. It's not about coming to this well. And the Lord Jesus doesn't answer her question, doesn't answer her statement. I want this water. You know what he says? He says, go call your husband. Now that seems really strange right here, doesn't it? She just said, I want this water. The Lord Jesus says, go call your husband. What? I just asked you for water. I don't have a husband, she says. And the Lord Jesus says, yeah, you know what? You're right. You've had five and the one you're with now is not your husband. You know what this tells us? The Lord Jesus, the omniscient God, knows the hearts of men. So here's what this means for you right now. As you sit here, as you listen to the sound of my voice, the Lord searches your heart. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows the ins and outs of it. In fact, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The very next verse says this, I, the Lord... I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. In fact, Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and naked to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Everything about your character may not be known by the person next to you. Husbands, your wife doesn't know everything that goes on in your heart. Wives, husbands don't know what goes on in your heart. Nobody does but God alone. And this individual in front of us in this account knows your heart at this instant. He knows the idols that are there. He knows the hurts that are there. He knows the pain that is there. He knows absolutely everything about you. Jesus distinguishes the hearts of men. If we had time, I would give you point number five and and illustrate it fully for you, which is that Jesus defines true worship. In John 4, 19 to 24, we read in that portion of Scripture, the, uh, the, the woman of Samaria says, oh, I see that you're a prophet. You just told me about my heart. You must be a prophet. You're someone pretty important. just want to pause and say this. Nobody who believes that Jesus is a prophet will ever be saved. So what? Nobody believes that Jesus alone is a prophet. 
That he is not the son of God. He's just simply a good teacher. If you believe that, you are not on your way to heaven. You are not going to have sins forgiven. Because he's not a good teacher. He's not a good prophet. He is the son of God who laid down his life for you. That's why the Muslim God is not our God. That's why the Buddhist God is not our God. Good prophet, they say. Good preacher. But not the son of God. The Lord Jesus makes a remarkable statement to this woman of Samaria. He says, You worship at this mountain, Mount Gerizim. The Jews worship over there at Jerusalem. And he says, a time is coming where you're not going to worship at either place. It's all going. There's going to be worship in your heart when I die on the cross and rise again from the dead. You are going to have access to real worship. You're going to worship me in spirit and in truth. And I don't have the time to tell you all about that. But Jesus defines true worship. But I do want to just point out the very last point this morning before we close. Appreciate you being so gracious and patient with me. In John chapter 4, verse 25 to 29, this is what we read. Let me read it one more time. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town And said to the people, come see a man who told me all that ever that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The last thing as we close is Jesus declared to be the Messiah. The Samaritans, though they had lots of problems with their so-called theology in that day, they were still waiting for a Messiah too. They were waiting for the coming king of Israel who would establish a kingdom and would bring the Samaritans and the Jews together. They were all waiting for this wonderful king that had been promised who was going to conquer. And the Lord Jesus, with no question, says to them assertively to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the one. I'm the promised one, he says. Now, again, let me say this. Either he is an incredible liar or this is truth. And only the Holy Spirit can show you that reality. He's either a madman who cannot be trusted or he is who he says he is. I want to challenge you as we close this morning. Perhaps you're here and you know in your own heart I am not a child of God. I have never truly, in utter dependence, trusted in Christ for salvation. I want to encourage you to hear his voice today, if you will hear his voice. Trust in the Lord Jesus as your saviour. He alone is your substitute and made payment for your sin. If you say, well, I don't really know the way forward, please come and see me. I'm totally approachable. I want to help. I want to show you from the pages of scripture who the Lord Jesus really is. Christian, you know, you know experientially, theologically, in every sense, the reality of having sins forgiven. You've been by that well and you've tasted of the living water. Let me ask you, are you still at this moment drinking from it or have you departed for a little way? Have you gone on a bit of a journey away from his glorious character and his gospel. You know, I'm going to do my own thing for a while. I beg you, I plead with you, come back. 
There is nothing like the true satisfaction of knowing that I am walking with him and the strength and the power that he gives in the midst of the storm of life to know for certain that even though everything around me is crumbling and I don't understand what's going on with Christ in the boat, I have peace, just like in the New Testament. There's nothing like that. Come back to the fountain of living waters. And then secondly, Christian, let me remind you, if you truly know as a Christian what he's done for you, then surely your response is going to be that of what this woman was. Hey, folks, come see a man. Come and see a man. He knows everything about me. He's changed my life. I've drunk from the water here. I want you to see him too. The natural response of a Christian who recognizes what God has done will be, I won't have to ask you to go preach the gospel. You'll say, You've got to come. You've got to come to the cross. Come to the cross with me and see what he's done. Look how he's changed my life. Is this not God? Is this not the Savior? Is this not the one who provides soul satisfaction? And so I plead with you based on John chapter 4 and with all the authority of heaven, come to the water. Come to Christ, the soul satisfying Savior. Father, this morning, thank you for uh, how you have uh, caused there to be limited distractions. Thank you, Lord, for uh, a time in your word. Thank you for the attention of these dear people. Uh, Lord, I pray that in all that has been communicated, there would be seen the love of Christ in this message, that there would be seen his desire to rescue a sinner. Despite the past, despite the problems, despite the burdens, He just desires to carry all of those that he might bring us to the Father. That's the point of his death, that he would bring us to God. And so, Lord, I pray that today there would be conversion. I pray that the Spirit of God would regenerate. And I pray that the Spirit of God would also bring revival to the saints. That, Lord, we would come back to the fountain. Thank you for a time in your word. And as we sing our final song, may the words that we say be a reality Springs of living water that come only from you. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.